Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we considered those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. During this time of year, we're surrounded with anticipation and preparation for Christmas. What does preparation for Christmas in America typically look like? It looks like shopping and consumerism. Christmas music begins to play on the radio, 99.9's on all month. Playlists come up on your Spotify account. Christmas lights and decorations going up around our neighborhoods. At least two Christmas parties going on every week. White elephant gift exchanges, shopping for gifts for all the families and so on. What we prepare for is what we are looking forward to. And in our modern Northwestern society, this season is very consumeristic and materialistic. And so we prepare for that anticipation. But when we think about Advent, ad, the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming, arrival. When we think about the Advent of Jesus and we prepare for Christ's advent, it rescues us from this materialistic anticipation or whatever our culture kind of defines Christmas and, and the anticipation of it to be, and it sets our eyes on Jesus and not only thinking about his first coming, but his second coming as well, the second advent. When we set our eyes on what advent really means, we prepare differently. Jesus coming in the first advent is meant to prepare us for the second advent, the second coming. The first advent, God the Son taking on flesh, the incarnation, was for the purpose that he would live a sinless life that we could not live, so that, we, so that he can die and take on the penalty of sin that we deserve and rise from the dead, defeating death. And this was all done so that we can be forgiven by God, by faith in Christ. We're then justified in God's sight, declared righteous, all because of Christ's righteousness. Christ ascended into heaven and will come again. There will be a second advent. The first advent, the incarnation, Christ came in a humble way as a, a tiny baby so accessible to us that we could receive him. But the second advent will be very different. It will be a day of judgment. And Christ prepares us with the first advent so that we can stand on the day of the second advent. Therefore, rather than preparing ourselves with materialism, we are to strengthen our hearts, ground our hearts, in the gospel, waiting with anticipation for that second coming. So if you're writing notes, my big idea 
is this. Christians should patiently anticipate the second advent. Christians should patiently anticipate the second advent. Our passage this morning is in James 5. James is writing to a church that is caught up in the in-between, the already and the not yet. Already Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. Already he is seated at the right hand of God in heaven and has all authority. Already are the Christians of that church and everywhere declared righteous by faith. Already they are declared citizens of heaven, but not yet is suffering done with. Not yet is every tear wiped away. They are still living in a fallen world. They still wrestle with sin. They still grieve death. They still face suffering, oppression, and persecution. And so it is the same with us. And James, we are caught up in the in-between of the two advents, the already and the not yet. And James is calling them and us to persevere and patiently anticipate for that second advent. So first point, the coming of the Lord is comfort for those who are patient. The coming of the Lord is comfort for those who are patient. Before we get started, let's pray. Father, God, we thank you for this day that you've made for us. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We thank you for your son Jesus, that he came the first time to live a perfect life, pay our penalty on the cross, rise from the dead, defeating death, so that we can be with you forever. Lord, even now, prepare our hearts to anticipate that second coming, to be patient for it, and to be grounded in your promises for that day. Pray this in Jesus' name. Verse seven reads, be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. Be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. This word for patient means to be long suffering with someone, to forbear with them. So the question, what's the occasion that they are to be, that they are called to be patient? Verse seven, the word therefore is the clue that the passage just before this one is why they are called to be patient. If you look up a little bit, I hope you have your Bibles open, verses one to six of James chapter five. It's the answer for us. He says, come now, you rich, and weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days, Behold, the wages of the laborers have mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. It's a pretty somber tone right there. In these first six verses, James is addressing another audience, that he calls the rich. He says, come now, you rich. From what James says, these people, they love their money and they've set their hearts and hope on what they can gain in this life. 
and their oppressors. These rich oppressors are taking advantage of Christians, the righteous person, they are poor and lowly in status. They're not, these rich oppressors are not paying their workers their due wages. They are dragging them into court and they are falsely taking them for everything they have. They're even murdering them. And James is calling these rich to mourn because there is a day of judgment that is coming for them. There's a second advent. Like a cow that is fattened for a slaughter, so they have fattened their hearts by their self-indulgence for a day of slaughter. Very somber tone. The day of the Lord is a somber tone of judgment for these oppressors in verses one to six. But in verse seven, the audience changes from these rich oppressors to the brothers and sisters in Christ who are the ones being oppressed. It changes from somber mourning over judgment now to patient anticipation of rescue. These Christians, they're being sinned against and those who wrong them are getting away with it. There's nothing they can do about it and no one seems like, it seems like no one's hearing their plea. They're tempted to take matters into their own hands and take revenge, but James tells them that there is a bright day coming and for them to be patient and wait. What does it look like to be patient in the midst of oppression and persecution? It looks like not taking matters into your own hands, not resisting by repaying evil for evil. It is long-suffering and forbearing with them. Notice the end of verse six says, the righteous person does not resist the oppressor. The hardest thing to do, it seems, is to turn the other cheek. And now how in the world is someone able to do this? By knowing that the Lord is coming again. By knowing that he's coming to rescue. It's much easier to hold off on revenge and to wait and be patient when injustice is happening, when you know someone is coming to rescue you and someone is coming with justice. In the conflict and forgiveness class, we looked briefly at Romans 12, 17 to 21, but here it is again. It's so applicable for this idea. He said, Paul says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, this is what the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the call for the Christian. And James gives us an illustration of patience. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. James's audience would be very familiar with agriculture and farming. After all, they were the ones who were working the rich oppressor's lands. The farmer's livelihood was the crop that grew from the ground. He was dependent on it for food and income. He could work the ground, he could sow the seed, but he couldn't make it grow. He had to trust that the early and late rains would come in. All he could do was wait. He had to trust in God over the things that he cannot control. And in the same way, 
in one sense, we need to be patient. Well, yes, in, we need to be patient for the coming of the Lord, trusting him over the things we cannot control. And in one sense, we cannot control life's circumstances, things like cancer, getting laid off, how your children will turn out. When, when COVID when it was in its prime, all we did was wait. And then things like death and so on. These are things that, that we must be patient with. We are called to wait and trust in the Lord and his return to make it all right. But we also, closer to this context, cannot control when the Lord comes back. But what he calls us to do is wait. There is temptation when waiting on God in our suffering. Temptation to doubt God, temptation to repay evil for evil, temptation to grumble at each other. And James knows this and so he gives us the remedy in verse eight. Verse eight, he says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And this word establish literally means strengthen your hearts. And it's just interesting the two times the word heart and what we're doing with our heart. Notice in verse five, the rich oppressors have fattened their hearts for the day of slaughter. They've, they've lived just for this life, heaping on them judgment, fattening their hearts for a day of slaughter. In contrast, we are to strengthen our hearts for the coming of the Lord. What does this mean? In one way to look at it, we see the same word in First Thessalonians similar context, uh, 3, 12, and 13. It says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So here, establishing your hearts means striving for holiness, knowing and trusting the Lord will finally bring this about in, in you leaning on him, relying on him to help you establish your heart. We need to rely on the Lord's help to do so. But establishing your hearts closer in this context of James also means, I see, grounding your hope in the promise of the gospel, in the promise that the Lord will come back to save. We need to be prayerful, watchful, and running to the Lord when the world is threatening us when it seems like we wanna give up on God, we need to ground our hearts, establish our hearts, strengthen our hearts in God's promises. That Jesus came once and he's going to come again and it's gonna be a bright and glorious day for us. Let's be anticip anticipating that day, abounding in love for one another. And we need to also remember that at the end of verse eight that the, the coming of the Lord is at hand. At hand, this idea of that it is imminent. It is the next thing to happen in redemption, redemption history and we need to be ready for it. And you might ask, how can his return be so imminent? It's been 2,000 years. Imminent seems like it should be a lot faster than that. We need to remember that God is outside of time. Second Peter 3, 8 says that the Lord, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day with him. So as far as the Lord is concerned, it's only been a couple days. His coming is imminent. And Peter goes on for application for us. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, 
but is patient. You see that? The, the Lord is patient with us, toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It is imminent. So what about you? Do you have a patient anticipation for the coming of the Lord? The church James is writing to was called to be patient in their persecution. And maybe that is the case with you. Maybe someone at work or school has found out you're a Christian and is now harassing you. Maybe you've lost your job because of your faith. Maybe it just seems harder to be a Christian than, is, than as, it is, as it is you weren't. In those moments, James in chapter one calls us to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There is a sanctification and grace in the waiting, in the suffering. Suffering produces steadfastness and that steadfastness the Lord will use to prepare us for heaven and for the crown of life. Heaven, see, heaven is more dear to us the more we suffer in this life. So let the steadfastness happen and he will give you the grace for it. So that's kind of a, a patient, we're called to be patient anticipation not only are we to have a patient anticipation, but do you have an eager anticipation for the coming of the Lord? Do you long for Jesus to come back and to put an end to sin and suffering once and for all? I, I don't know about you, but I'm tired of grieving death. I'm tired of dealing with sin in my own life. I'm tired of hearing stories about abuse and divorce and people being wronged and people wronging others. And the typical thing younger people like to think, they probably don't say it out loud. I know I did at one point. Lord I, wa- Lord, I want you to come back, but just let me get married first. Let, let, me, let me, you know, finish college or have a family first. Let me do this or that first, then I'll be ready for you. We need to desire to be with Jesus more than that. Looking at this broken world should stir us up to say, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. There's nothing better than you. We need to establish our hearts, as verse eight says. Are you establishing your hearts by grounding it in the gospel and by striving for holiness for that day when you see the Lord? Whether the Lord is coming back tomorrow or you die tonight, he's coming to us or we're going to him. You will be face to face with the judge of the universe and there will be many people who will be revealed as pseudo-believers because they did not truly establish their hearts in the Lord. If you're not a Christian, this is a call. The Lord is coming back, and it's either going to be a, a day of bright, a, a bright, glorious day, or a terrifying day. I, I want us to not fatten our hearts for a day of slaughter, just, just indulging in this life, but strengthening our hearts and being patient for that day, that bright and glorious day when he will take us home. 
So if you're not a Christian, establish your hearts in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. He is the only one who can save. He is the only one that will make that terrifying day a glorious day. And he has come in the first advent so accessible to you, so gracious to us to receive him, to come to him laboring and weary. Second point, the coming of the Lord is a warning for those who grumble. Verse nine, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. In the midst of their suffering and persecution, the church is tempted to grumble against each other. Why would they be grumbling against each other? Maybe because they wanna lash out on someone or something in response to their suffering. That's, that's a typical way how, how we deal with our suffering, right? We just wanna, we just wanna go to the, one of those like, places where you get to like, throw and break plates, and I think it's at one of the Westgate, or I've never been there, but I hear people go there when they're just so built up with stuff, they just wanna lash out, and so we either go there, or we just lash out on people. It's easy to grumble in those moments. But I, I asked the question, James, why on each other? Thinking about it, my take, probably because if, if Christians are called to forbear persecution and forbear and long suffer with one another, then it seems a lot easier to grumble at, put down, attack, and judge those who would forbear with you. Easier targets. It could be that they are grumbling against one another's amount of suffering. This idea, what I'm going through is a lot worse than you, so I have a right to grumble. There seems to be this view, just people have this view today that um, if the, more, if the more you suffer, the more worthy you are to, to sympathy and the more virtuous you become and the more right you have to, to grumble. That could be a part of it. But notice what the verse says. He's basically saying, grumble not that you may not be judged. And that sounds very familiar to what Jesus says in Matthew 7.1. Judge not that you be not judged. James is meaning to point us to this verse. What, so we gotta ask the question now, what does grumbling against others and judging others have in common? And the answer I take is that they, they both elevate the self. The one who does both, grumbling against others and judging others, assumes that they are better off than others and therefore deserves to attack and put down others. They assume they don't deserve what they are going through and so grumble at and judge others as a response. It says, I am better, I deserve better, and I have a right to complain. And we also see in James that grumbling has a lot to do with the way we speak. And James has already had much to say with how we speak and how we should speak. In 119, he says that every person should be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And 126 says, if anyone thinks he is religious but does not bridle his tongue, deceives himself. And in 411, he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. 
and most of chapter three in James is committed to taming the tongue. We need to watch the way we speak because the tongue is a world of unrighteousness. And such a small member can set on fire the entire course of life. It's very easy to grumble in the waiting. I'm faced with the urge to grumble every time I have to wait in traffic. But when we grumble against one another as a response to suffering, we are saying we don't deserve what we are going through and we are, in a deeper sense, grumbling against God. We are dissatisfied with God's plans. We're forgetting that he means all things for our good. When we grumble, we are losing sight of the Lord's coming. We're losing sight of the sanctification and the grace in the midst of suffering. We are forgetting that he is coming to make all wrongs right, including the one that we're going through right now. When we, when we grumble, we're not establishing our hearts in the promise of the gospel. Grumbling is what we are tempted to do in the waiting. And so this is a warning for us. He said, grumble not that you not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This same, the same promise that the Lord is coming again. It is, a, it is a comfort for Christians, but it is also a sobering warning. And this idea that the, jo- that the judge is standing at the door, again, means his coming is imminent. It's this idea that his hand is on the latch and the door is going to swing open any second. If someone is doing something they're not supposed to be doing behind a closed door and that door all of a sudden swing opens, they're not gonna have time to hide what they're doing. And in the same way, when the Lord comes, all will be open to see. And, and I don't want to be caught doing something shady, trying to hide it last second when the Lord returns. I want my heart to be established, ready to receive him. And just made me think this morning, Ryan brought up evangelism in the Sunday school class. When we, when we think about the idea that the Lord, that his coming is imminent, like, that should affect our evangelism, the way we, the way we just think about the gospel and, and how we should speak of it. The coming of the Lord is a comfort, but also a sobering warning. It should be an active waiting that we have. When we are tempted to grumble, let's ground our hearts in God's future promises. We need to remind ourselves of the gospel daily. Third point, remembering the character of God helps us in our perseverance. Verses 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. One of the ways we can hold fast in waiting for the Lord and not fall into temptation of grumbling and doubt is by looking at the past patience and perseverance of others. And James first points us to the prophets. They spoke in the name of the Lord to a people who didn't want to hear it. (laughs) The prophets called out Israel's sin, their coming judgment, and their need to repent. The people hated what the prophets had to say, 
and so they persecuted them. But the prophets, they didn't waver. They didn't stop speaking in the name of the Lord. They persevered. They were patient in their suffering. Again, the question, how in the world did they keep going? Because they had their hopes set on the coming of the Messiah and the promise of the kingdom of heaven. The same promise and hope that we should have today. And it's interesting because they didn't see the whole view, at least not as much of a view as we do now, but that's what they held on to. Stephen in Acts 7, before he was about to be stoned, says this, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. They were looking forward to that coming righteous one, and they completely missed it, the Pharisees then. Again, Hebrews 11 speak of how Old Testament saints look forward to a future city of God. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And Jesus promises the kingdom of heaven for those who are patient and steadfast in righteous suffering, Matthew 5:10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evils against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And that sounds a lot like verse 11 in our passage. James is picking up on this. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And so James is showing us that perseverance in suffering prepares us for that state of blessing. And we see this especially in Job. Though Job had everything taken away from him, his possessions and children, though he was told by his own wife to curse God and die, great quality in a wife, he remained steadfast and did not charge God with wrongdoing. Instead, he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But we read from James that God's purpose, his end goal, the the word purpose there is telos, which means like end goal, you know, final goal. His end goal for Job is not just to have him suffer for suffering's sake, to prove Satan wrong, but that Job would see God's glory displayed and be blessed. And God's glory is displayed in his character. When Moses asked God to show him his glory, God puts him in the cleft of a rock and passed by him declaring his character, Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is what Job's suffering has brought him to behold. After God is done speaking with Job, Job responds to God saying, I know that you can do all things 
and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job sees the glory of God displayed in God's character through Job's suffering. And Job saw a future day of salvation despite his present sufferings. We know at the end of Job, God blessed him with double of everything he had. And that, that is part of the many things, part of the many purposes that God has in suffering, that he would bless and show us his glory. And the same will be true for us who remain steadfast here on earth. James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We will be blessed with being with him forever, with no sin. That's what he's preparing us for. So James wants us to look at each other's perseverance and suffering and be encouraged and motivated by it to stir us up to be patient as well. Um, take, so I wanna encourage you, take note to see those in the church who are faithful, who still blesses God through cancer, through loss, through losing their job because of their faith. I'm encouraged to see this being done here already. The, the gospel on the ground testimonies, it, it really encourages me. Every time I listen to it, it, it stirs my faith. And on the flip side, you could be that person someone is watching. You could be suffering and someone might be watching how you are suffering well. That's one of the many ways God uses suffering for the good of those who love him. If you're suffering through something, let that be a reminder not to grumble. Someone could be watching that. So the story of the prophets and Job should encourage us because we know that God's purposes are above the suffering. His purposes are to make us more like his son, to bring us to trust in him, to prepare us to spend eternity with him. And his purposes are that we would behold his mercy, his compassion, his character, his glory, and God's greatest act of compassion and mercy are at the cross where God's son, Jesus Christ, bore our sins and shed his blood so that we can be cleansed of our sin and forgiven in God's sight. And that first advent is the only ground we can stand on for the second advent. As we wait, we need to keep our sights on Jesus. Jesus is the Sunday school answer. I love what Paul Tripp says, he says, Jesus, he's the one you wait for. He's how you wait. He's with you in the waiting and he gives you grace in the waiting. Another way I am encouraged to be patient, looking at the saints in the Bible, looking at each other, um, patient, those are ways to be patient for the coming of the Lord. Another way is reading about martyrs in history who were persecuted for their faith and did not waver even unto death. Um, a great book for that is Fox, Voices of the Martyrs. I encourage you guys to, to get that and read it. Um, I just wanna conclude reading an excerpt about 
there were so many to pick from. I, there were so many good ones. I'm like, I, I'm having a hard time picking from them. The other day, me and Ryan were reading different ones. We're like, oh man, that's so cool. Like, but I'll, I, I have to do one. So uh, Thomas Cranmer. After the death of King Edward VI in 1553, England was no longer under the papal authority. Protestant, Protestantism was the mainstream religious authority until Mary Tudor took the throne. She infamously became known as Bloody Mary for all those who refused to recant their Protestant beliefs. About 300 people were executed under her reign, mostly by burning at the stake. In November 1553, Cranmer was charged with treason and imprisoned. He stood a mock trial with reformers Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. And Cranmer was then forced to watch from his cell in London Tower Latimer and Ridley be burned at the stake. It was there Latimer encouraged Ridley as the fire was lighting underneath them, saying, Be of good comfort, Dr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust will never go out. And six months after Cranmer witnessed his friend's death in jail on the night of March 20th, 1556, Cranmer succumbed to his ultimate humiliation. Shivering with fear of the stake awaiting him the next morning, he signed decrees recanting every reformational conviction and affirming the Bishop of Rome as true head of Christ's church. He quivered at how far he had fallen. On the next day, Perhaps even Cranmer himself was surprised by the calm and courage of his last hour. I love this. Asked to make public his true convictions, Cranmer clearly recanted his midnight recantation. He recanted his recantation. <laughs> Boldly declare his faith by the Nicene Creed. Clearly separated himself from Rome and declared he would thrust his right hand first into the flames to purge the cowardice of last night's, last night's signatures. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was bound by a steel band to the stake. He said, this hand hath, hath offended, lowering it into the flames. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he moaned and then collapsed into the fire. I love that story because at the last hour, when it seemed like he was going to give up on God, God gives him the grace to see through his suffering to see through the sufferings of this life and pass from earth to heaven. We're called to be patient in the suffering, knowing there is a future day that outweighs the here and now. Let's long for that second advent. Just one more verse, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray.